0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at capitalone.com/slash venturex business. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up.
1: Hey, it's Guy here. So generally speaking, deceiving people, being deceptive, that this is a bad thing, right? But are there times when deception and lies are Kind of a necessary means to an end? Well, today on the show, we're exploring stories of people who went undercover to explore unknown territory and to find the truth. This episode is called Going Undercover, and it originally aired in December of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz. So back when Theo E.J. Wilson was in his early 20s... Uh, Right after graduating college... He experienced something that would stay with him
3: forever. Yeah, uh, in 2003. I had a fight at a nightclub, uh, which did not involve me. Incidences led to where I was handcuffed to a chair and beaten by Denver police, and I thought I was going to die. And uh, the PTSD from that was pretty intense... And uh, at the time, I was only 22, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. And uh, literally, the reaction of my family uh, surprised me some. What was their reaction? Their reaction to, to that moment, at that moment, was one to the effect of, this is what it is to be black in America, son. You know, we could go down to the precinct and we could fuss and we could fight, but did you get your lesson? Because you're not going to be able to fight or win every battle.
1: A few years later, in 2011, Theo lost a childhood friend, Alonzo Ashley, after a struggle with police. Alonzo's death was ruled a homicide, and no one was ever charged. And at that point, the death of unarmed black men at the hands of police was becoming a national news story.
3: The death of Alton Sterling. Michael Brown. Tamir Rice. Shooting a Philando Castile. Like year old Freddie
2: Gray was picked up by Baltimore.
1: And all those things happening pushed Theo to get involved and speak out as an activist by making YouTube videos.
3: It's hatred, like it was a boiling, maroon passion in the pit of my stomach. I was looking for a way through. And part of my healing was the videos. You know, prayers are going to cry. We've been praying since we was in chains. We,
1: we, we, we know cameras are not going to save the situation. Their body cameras somehow stood off. Now, them. a lot of people watch Theo's videos, and they attracted a lot of comments as well, including some by people who identified with the All Right movement, people who were telling Theo to go back to Africa, or calling him a thug and
3: calling you a bucket of (laughs) n-words you know and like labeling you the very worst words that your people have been hearing since they were brought to these shores is uh is, is is all a thing to take in and uh i would engage in these battles ad nauseum you would engage i would engage man ad nauseum like i remember hours going by trying to defeat people with words and I realized I, I wasn't getting anywhere because I wasn't seeing the root of the problem. And I began to be very, very curious. Like, how are you saying this, dude?
1: Like, what, how, how, how are you... In other words, you were saying, how do you... Where do these views and ideas and hatred, where does it come from? How does it research with a
3: black president... Oprah Winfrey everywhere. Every kid in my generation had a Michael Jordan on this wall. You know what I mean? Back before the uh, rape case, Cosby was America's dad, right? So you have all these African American icons of progress, these benchmarks. And so, having been born in this generation, these were, these were millennials talking this way, man. Like, these were people born after 1980. You know what I mean? How did that happen?
1: That was a deep curiosity of mine. The E.J. Wilson picks up the story from the Ted Stage. I um remember being called highly colorful
3: racial slurs by those who used the anonymity of the internet as a clan hood. And um some of them were pretty creative actually. But others were pretty wounding, especially navigating the post-traumatic world of a police brutality survivor in the height of Black Lives Matter with all of these people being killed on my timeline. To these trolls, I wasn't a human. I was an idea, an object, a caricature. I also began to notice that a few of my trolls actually had brains, uh, which made me even more curious and want to understand them even further. And uh, although these supposed morons engaged in what appeared to be original thought, I said to myself, "Um, these guys are highly misinformed at least according to my knowledge. Where are these guys getting these arguments from?
1: Theo wanted to know who these people were and why they hated him so much. So he created a fake YouTube account. What did you call the identity?
3: Lucius 25.
1: And pretended to be one of them, a white supremacist.
3: Well, you know your enemy, you know yourself. And I can't afford to not know this. And so, also, my skin began to get thicker. I wasn't as triggered as I used to be. I was used to the fire. And I understood one thing. These people were afraid. These people were tormented. And that informed me of the the reason why this is not something that it's not quite what it appears to be.
1: On the show today, going undercover ideas about disguising parts of who you are to get at something you couldn't otherwise. Whether it's trying to understand another perspective or exposing wrongdoing or just living your life as you think life should be lived. And for Theo E.J. Wilson, going undercover wasn't just a matter of curiosity. It felt necessary.
3: People of color in this country are not blessed with the luxury of not knowing what white folks are thinking. Now, we can know and choose to not care what white folks are thinking, but we can't not know. And so I saw what looked like a returning of a tide, and I was drawn to it because I needed to know the size and scale and scope. I started with a little InfoWars, went on into some American Renaissance, National Vanguard Alliance, And, uh, you know, I started commenting on videos, talking bad about Al Sharpton and Black Lives Matter. I started uh, bemoaning race baiters like Eric Holder and Barack Obama. And um, just mirroring the anti-black sentiments that were thrown at me. And to be honest, it was kind of exhilarating. (laughs) Like, I would literally spend days clicking through my new racist profile. And so I then started visiting some of the pages of my former trolls. And um, a lot of these guys were just regular joes. a lot of outdoorsmen, hunters, computer nerds, some of them family guys with videos of their families. I mean, for all I know, some of y'all could be in this room right now.
1: So you would, and, and these are videos of like people ranting and no. Sending, no.
3: Oh, it would be so easy if they were just raving lunatics. No, some of these guys have good production value. Some of these guys do uh, a lot of research into a topic they call race reality. The idea that the uh, thousands of years that the races diverge in evolution have a scientific consequence that plays out even now in terms of our human potentials, our IQs, what we see at the Olympics In, in their idea, there was a race reality And they had a lot of pseudo-scholarship to back that up. Because once I began to investigate it, I was like, oh, okay, this has been debunked, and that's been debunked. But if you don't know that,
1: it sounds pretty real. So as you were writing this stuff and you were watching the responses, what were you hoping to learn? I was trying to see if there was a true academic
3: basis for what they were saying. I wanted to give it a for real college try, man. Is there something behind all of this that I'm not seeing? Is the way that I'm perceiving the world... Off? What are the data points that I'm losing here? When I went undercover, I found a lovely plethora of characters. Luminaries like Milo Yiannopoulos, Richard Spencer, and David Duke. All of these guys were thought leaders in their own right. But over time, the alt-right movement ended up using their information to fuel their momentum. And I'm going to tell you what else led to the momentum of the alt-right the left wing's wholesale demonization of everything white and male. One thing kept screaming at me through the subtext of those arguments, and that was, why should I be hated for who I cannot help but be? That was a black man in America that resonated with me. I have spent so much time defending myself against attempts to demonize me and make me apologize for who I am trying to portray me as something that I'm not, some kind of thug or gangster or menace to society. Unexpected compassion. Wow. Never in a billion years did I think that I could have some kind of compassion for people who hated my guts.
1: Um, your talk is very complex, yeah. extremely complex, because um, you kind of express compassion for... yeah. For these people. And let
3: me be clear about the difference between compassion and sympathy. Compassion is my spiritual duty as a human being. But that's different than, well, a lot of people interpret that compassion as a sympathy. I don't have sympathy for that. You see, compassion figures out how you got to where you are. Sympathy is having compassion for where they ended up. Mm-mm, none of that. And that's a very, very key distinction that, that has to be made. Um... I get how somebody could be born on that side of the divide and end up where they are. But I also get that we all have brains and we can do our own bit of education and we can figure out exactly what data
1: points we're missing and why don't you care to do it? That was a question that I had. Do you think that you would have come to that conclusion had you not gone undercover? I don't know about that, man. Um, Because it seems like that experience just... It exposed you to things that made you think very, very deeply about about how people see race. The most important thing that I think that we could get
3: from this is that there is unhealed trauma on every side of the racial divide. There's trauma, man, and a lot of people talk about the the, the, the trauma that Black folks have, uh, the post-traumatic slavery syndrome. But then there's also a trauma that white folks experienced. And that experience comes from the fact, and I, I, I made a video about this, about how slavery wounded white people. You don't get to be a part of a force that did that much damage to other peoples without somehow having damage done to yourself at some level. Every time somebody saw somebody lynched, even if they were white, that was damaged. If you witness a murder, that's therapy for life, right? One murder, right? So what does it say when the whole culture gets a lynch mob out and goes hanging folks? You think little Billy, the first time he sees a black man burning from a tree and going to experience some kind of trauma? That's going to show up some kind of place, right? That All of that has a cost. The great tragedy of racism is that we are all human is that we all lose a piece of our humanity.
1: Theo E.J. Wilson is a community activist in Denver. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about going undercover. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from
4: NPR. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past, Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, going undercover. Um, Jamie... Are you really who you say you are? I believe I am. Okay, good. All right, you're not like <laughs> a fake person who, who's just pretending to be Jamie Bartlett.
5: Well, I, I mean, I would never tell you, would
1: I? So as far as we know, this is Jamie Bartlett. He's a journalist and an author. And Jamie focuses on this hidden part of the internet. It's called the darknet, where, among other things, you can buy and sell illegal stuff.
5: A lot of drugs, stolen data, counterfeit money, commercially available hacking services and the like. Definitely.
1: And a couple years ago, Jamie spent a lot of time poking around the dark net while researching for his books as kind of an anonymous undercover observer.
5: Yeah, I mean, I spent a year basically immersed in a lot of Internet subcultures. So all the sort of darker sides of internet behaviour that get people very worried, I decided to sort of try to understand them a little better.
1: Jamie describes what he found there from the TED stage. If you want to buy high quality,
5: low price cocaine, there really is only one place to go. And that is the Darknet Anonymous (laughs) markets. You can't get to these sites with a normal browser, Chrome or... Firefox, because they're on this hidden part of the internet known as Tor Hidden Services, where URLs are a string of meaningless numbers and letters that end in .onion and which you access with a special browser called the Tor Browser. Now, the Tor Browser was originally a U.S. Naval Intelligence project. It then became open source, and it allows anybody to browse the net without giving away their location. And it does this by encrypting your IP address and then routing it via several other computers around the world that use the same software. To the user, it really feels very much like the rest of the internet because you don't actually do anything all that different. I mean, you download a browser and you use the browser and you follow links. And so it's become a bit of a a bit of a wild west of the internet, where people with something to hide or who have reason to keep themselves hidden, whether it's for good reason or bad, find a natural home there. And because of this fiendishly clever encryption system, the 20 or 30, we don't know exactly, 1,000 sites that operate there are incredibly difficult to shut down. It is a censorship-free world visited by anonymous users. Little wonder, then, that it's, uh, it's a natural place to go for anybody with something to hide. And that something, of course, need not be illegal. On the dark net, you will find whistleblower sites, you will find political activism blogs, you will find libraries of pirated books, but you'll also find the drugs markets, illegal pornography, commercial hacking services,
1: and much more besides... It sounds like the bar on Tatooine. Like it sounds like you'd go outside and you'd find, uh, you know, Han Solo, and he'll, he's like a, he's a he's a, he's a mercenary. I think he was a trafficker. I think he was illegally
5: trafficking goods, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. You know what? That's so weird. You said that because I was literally thinking of that bar on Tatooine. When I was trying to describe it, and I thought, that's far too niche a reference. No one will know what I'm talking about. And
6: there you go. But that
5: is a little bit what it's like, a den of villainy where
1: you've got heroes and villains right next to each other. All right, so let me ask you a, a kind of a dumb question. Um, so there's dark, this dark net, and uh, people go on it, and they can get pretty much anything they want, drugs, weapons... Hackers, I don't know, maybe maybe murders for hire, or whatever. Like, but say you do order something, physically order something that's illegal, that you have to, you have to actually take possession of. How does that work? How do you get a bag of drugs sent to you? Well, I mean,
5: in my in my book, I got a bag of drugs sent to me. Really? Um, it's really not that difficult. I mean, people put their address in and they, they usually will put a drop address. So it's an address to which you have access, but it's not your home address. So you'll put a fake name on there, and you but you know to look out for a package. That's what most people tend to do. But you've got to remember that a lot of the trade on there is not necessarily physical goods. I mean, a lot of stolen data, stolen credit cards, illegal pornography, which is also available there. This can be sent as digital files to email addresses. Hmm. So you don't even need to have anything physical to access. But, and of course, a lot of the drugs are sent through the post. Um, but the reality is that there are millions upon millions of letters that are sent around the world every single day. And it's just impossible for the authorities to actually monitor all of them. So most of it gets through. The first thing you will notice on signing up to one of these sites is how familiar it looks. Every single product, thousands of products, has a glossy, high-res image, a detailed product description, a price. There's a proceed to checkout icon. There is even, most beautifully of all, a report this item button. Incredible. Interested in what drugs are trending right now on the dark net markets? Check Grams, the search engine. You can even buy some advertising space. Are you an ethical consumer worried about what the drugs industry is doing? Yeah. One vendor will offer you fair trade organic cocaine. That's not being sourced from Colombian drug lords, but Guatemalan farmers. They even promised to reinvest 20% of any profits into local education (laughs) programs. And the vendors are attentive, they're polite, they're consumer-centric, offering you all manner of special deals, one-offs, buy one, get one free, free delivery, to keep you happy. I um, spoke to Drugs Heaven. Drugs Heaven was offering... Excellent and consistent marijuana at a reasonable price. Dear Drugs Heaven, I wrote via the internal uh, emailing system that's also encrypted, of course. I'm new here. Do you mind if I buy just one gram of marijuana? A couple of hours later, I get a reply. They always reply. Hi there. Thanks for your email. Starting small is a wise thing to do. I would, <laughs> I would too if I were you. So no problem if you'd like to start with just one gram. I do hope we can do business together. Best wishes, drugs heaven.
1: (laughs) So, okay, so you're doing uh, research, and and did you, like, present yourself as Jamie Bartlett? Like, I'm a researcher and I'm doing this, like, I'd like to buy some some pot, or did you have to adopt, like, an alter ego?
5: It depended on what... I was doing. I mean, generally speaking, uh, I think it's much better for a a writer or a researcher, it's more ethically sound, to to let people know who you are and what you're doing. And and, and especially in these sort of very sensitive online communities, I mean, I spent a lot of time in forums that were dedicated to um, people talking about suicide um and who sort of fantasized about committing suicide and i I felt it would be a little bit misleading and unfair if i was almost spying on them in these what are quite sensitive online spaces so generally speaking i'd be open but there are times of course where you make the judgment that to really get to the story you do need to go undercover did you have like a name that you used while I was writing this book, I can't tell you how many email accounts I set up, how many different, <laughs> you know, different usernames, yeah. different... I mean, all sorts of... I always just—I always tried to make them as bland as possible right. because, you know, I always—I'd never really wanted to stand out. I mean, of course, sometimes you'd want to make a slightly more believable name. So if you're going into a neo-Nazi forum, you'd want to call yourself something with the word werewolf or ah, something like right. patriot right. right 77 or yeah. and then obviously if you go to a radical left-wing forum you don't want to use patriot 77 so there you you know they're your trotsky 85 yeah and so you you are you do have to quickly learn how to fit into these places you always actually got to be half on guard you don't go native because you can get sucked into online communities very, very quickly and easily. I mean, that's one of the things that I I learned, because you begin to understand why people are there and what they're doing there, and the danger is you actually – you kind of lose your own moral compass, and you stop, I guess, seeing the the bigger problems
1: that maybe some of these behaviors are creating. You know, I I was thinking about your talk and and your research, and it really did make me think that there are lots of things we just – we can't find out about unless we kind of do the cloak and dagger thing. Yeah. But but at the same time, when you were doing all this this undercover stuff on the dark net, um I mean, were you ever worried that you might actually get into legal trouble?
5: Yeah, and it's very very difficult because I I think to surface the problems, you do have to have independent journalists trying to figure it out. Yeah. I thought that it was, in the end, a legal risk that I was willing to take to buy a small amount of marijuana. But I'm also asked all the time, well, can you buy a gun? Could you buy some stolen data? Could you buy some fake passports? But I know that if I did that, there would be no defence for me. in the law. I wouldn't be able to say, oh, I was only doing it for research. And it's, uh, it's rather frustrating because it means there's a lot of dark places on the internet that I think we could learn a lot more about and understand better if there were a way to allow researchers to get in there and understand it properly without getting themselves in trouble legally. And I don't quite know how, but I think it would be a great benefit if we could.
1: Jamie Bartlett is the author of The Darknet and Radicals, The Outsiders Changing the World. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So the 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 drugs arrived to your like Dropbox.
5: Actually, I got them sent to my home address. And were they high quality? Oh, I, I didn't actually take them. Oh, you did not smell them. Oh, I just smelt them. Research,
1: just research, you know. Just to, yeah, you know.
5: I just didn't think that was gonna. I mean, I just I smelt them and then got rid of them.
1: On the show today, going undercover. And sometimes, especially in dangerous situations, the best person to go undercover is probably someone who's already on the inside.
6: So can you please introduce yourself? My name is uh, Mubin Sheikh. I went through a period of radicalization into extremism in my 20s. I went through a period of de-radicalization after a study in Syria. And uh, returned back to Canada to become a, a counterterrorism operative.
1: Mubin grew up in Toronto, the son of Indian immigrants, and his family was pretty traditional and
6: conservative. We did go to the mosque uh, very regularly, and uh, we lived in an apartment building. And at the, the at the ground level, there's a recreation room which was turned into basically a Quran school. Hmm. And so, yeah, that was a very regular feature of my childhood. So you would go to
1: uh to like a Quran school how often? Uh 7 days a week, 2 wow. hours a day, starting from what yeah. age? 5. So from age 5 you would go
6: every day to Quran school. And uh what was it like? Well, it was uh it was a a rough environment. You know, th- I mean they 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 slapped us around. Uh they did. We were slapped around if we if we read the Quran incorrectly. So it was a very very tough, uh, austere learning environment. I think it put into my mind the the notion that religion was something violent.
1: Mubin Sheikh picks up the story from the TED stage.
6: Of course, the public school that I went to during the day was the complete opposite of this environment. The boys and girls mixed. It was a nurturing, caring environment. You weren't slapped if you made a mistake. But one day... When my parents were gone overseas, I had a house party. And unbeknownst to me, my father had told his brother, my uncle, to check on the house while he was gone. (laughs) So as a teenager who has this party happening and all the friends are over, in the middle of the party, my uncle walks in. And he begins yelling and screaming, telling everyone to get out. He grabbed me by the scruff of my neck. He says, what have you done? You've shamed the family. You have dishonored and defiled the home. People pray here, he said. You're bringing these people here to do these things? He called up other uncles who came to the house, sat me down, surrounded me, and berated me over and over, making me feel so guilty over what I had done. And so I told myself that the only way for me to, to salvage what was left of my, my credibility, my reputation in the family and in the community was to, quote-unquote, get religious. So I took a four-month trip to India and Pakistan. And as I was walking about a rural area, I saw these men who looked like religious men, and I approached them to seek some wisdom from them. But they said to me, if you want to bring about change in the world, then you have to do it through jihad. You have to do it through the AK-47. And when I returned back to the mosque that I was staying at, they followed back with me. They let me fire their AK-47, and I was bit by the jihadi bug.
1: Okay so you're in Pakistan and and you see these guys who you now know were like Taliban fighters right right and and what did you do
6: I thought you know let me go and talk to them you know they have uh, rocket propelled grenades AK47s you know ammunition belts now I'm also undergoing this identity crisis um where I'm trying to force this Islamic identity you know, I'm I'm dealing. I'm trying to experiment with it. I don't know what I want. I just know that I'm supposed to be religious, quote unquote. This is what I saw in these guys, right? They were religious, but they were militants as well. And for a young, you know, 18-year-old Muslim kid uh, who's there seeing this, this was the epitome of uh, heroism, and and that's where that's where how everything started. So you, you're there for a couple months,
1: and what, you go back to Canada with a renewed kind of vigor and commitment to to your religion or to what your perception yeah. of what your religion was supposed to be?
6: That's right, that's right. Um, you know, now I had, uh, I returned back um, to Canada, and I am now more politically aware, all right? I'm now talking about, uh, I'm thinking and talking about, you know, the what's happening, jihad in the Muslim world. And so I fell into those conversations. I was, you know, I was uh, offered uh, to be able to go and join the fight. Uh, a couple of my friends went to two guys went to Yemen. One guy went to Pakistan. I never heard from them again. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the mindset I had come into. And you were involved with these guys for
1: quite a few years, right? Right. So w- what happened? Like, what made you start
6: to take a step? back like away from them what happened was so I you know after 95 I come back um, I'm I'm in the networks I'm recruiting other kids you know I'm I'm really involved in the activities um, that these guys are doing 1998 I get married the year after that 1999 I had my first child and now that kind of calms me down a bit but what was what was the like the tipping point 9-11 happened and nine eleven was really the, the the moment that really pushed me over and said, you know what, I, I'm out of this. Like this kind of thinking is obviously wrong. So I, I thought to myself, how is it that I came to subscribe to this idea in the first place? And I started to rethink, you know, what I had gone through and what I had experienced. And I came back. I, I realized I need to study my religion properly. I don't know Arabic. I didn't study, you know, the Islamic sciences. So I said, screw it, I'm, I'm going to go and study.
1: When we come back in just a moment, how Mubin Sheikh's growing doubts about extremism led him to go undercover as a counterterrorism operative. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
4: Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn about this comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com your findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This message comes from EarthX. The EarthX 2024 Environmental and Sustainability Congress of Conferences is happening in April and brings together all sides with one important mission, protect the planet. Go to earthx.org to register. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th with savings on beef short ribs, sockeye salmon, and more regionally inspired finds from Whole Foods Market.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, going undercover. And we were just hearing from Mubeen Sheikh, who, as a young man, fell in with a group of extremists. But after September 11th, 2001, Mubeen realized that the people around him didn't actually know that much about Islam. And neither did he. And so he decided to move to Syria, which back then was a major hub for Islamic scholarship. Here's Mubin Sheikh on the TED
6: stage. I sold my belongings. I took my wife and my two young children at the time, and I left. The Islamic university that I attended, I met a young Islamic scholar who would challenge my interpretations. I spent a year and a half with him. We went over chapter and verse of what extremists use, cherry-pick, and mutilate the understanding of Islam. I came to realize that my interpretations were completely wrong, and with a newfound understanding of the religion, returned to Canada in 2004. Of course, the first week I was back, in the front page of the paper, was a young man who had been arrested on terrorism charges in connection with a London bomb plot. That young man was from my Quran school that I attended as a child. He was my friend that used to sit next to me. So I contacted the Security Intelligence Service. I thought, this has to be a mistake. But of course, after that phone call, an hour later, I was sitting across the table from an intelligence agent, intelligence officer, who of course recruited me to become an undercover counterterrorism operative, or as I saw it, doing my Islamic duty to protect innocent people.
1: So what did did the Canadian intelligence officers want you to do?
6: Well, I mean, uh, the mandate of the intelligence service is to collect information that is um, uh, information on threats to security of Canada. So my job was to um, become friends with uh, the targets, um, find out what they're up to, find out what they're doing, Tell us if this guy is somebody we need to keep watching or not. So, for example, in the end of November 2005, they sent me to a group of guys. They said, okay, tell us what they're about. And then in June 2006, after being seven months operational on that group, 18 guys got arrested on uh, various criminal offenses, one of which was, of course, terrorism.
1: What motivated you to do this i mean a lot of people might think god am i am i a turncoat it seems like you were sort of thinking i'm angry like these people are are giving a false impression of my religion like i I want to root them out
6: well that was my uh, that was my motivator uh, because these people were ruining the religion i mean i did go through periods of um, you know second guessing myself and you know my god what am i doing here <laughs> right thoughts yeah you know, for example, I'll give you two examples. Like one where I'm in the mosque, I'm in prayer next to targets of investigations. And I remember, you know, thinking and saying to God, what am I doing? Like I'm I'm praying, but I'm spying on these guys. The second instance um, that, that I keep uh, remembering was, the the main target of the investigation, you know, I was in a car, there was interceptor of video and audio recording equipment inside it. And he comes out with his infant daughter. And the infant daughter, of course, knows me, recognizes me, and she comes into my, my arms. And I'm cooing with her and playing with her and smiling. But I'm thinking inside, you know, your father is probably going to go to prison. You know, I wonder what's going to happen to you. Were you ever scared? Uh, There, Of course. I mean, there were times where I did feel fear. They were armed. Uh, I was not. Um, They made it clear that they would kill, you know, traitors and spies. Uh, So certainly the threat of that was there. Uh, I was prepared for certain eventualities. And thank God, you know, nothing came of that.
1: Do do you think that the, the, the idea of... I mean, the idea of going under covers, uh, we often associate that idea with deception. But on the other hand, it can seem like exposing wrongs,
6: you know? Well, yeah, that's I mean, and that's exactly that, you know, that that spectrum. There is a, a higher objective, right? A greater good that you do this for, because, as I mentioned, it is a necessary, a mandatory ingredient like you. You cannot get evidence or information of covert wrongdoing unless you're undercover there is mm-hmm. simply no other way to do it do you think that by going undercover you saved lives i have no doubt that i saved lives uh, i know for a fact that um, that i prevented attacks and and people are alive today because of that
1: Mubin Sheikh. By the way, if you're wondering, Mubeen is allowed to talk about his undercover work because he had to testify in that Toronto terrorism case. And as a result, he can never go undercover again. Today, he's a counterterrorism expert and he advises government agencies. You can see Mubeen's full talk at ted.npr.org.
2: You know, I grew up thinking, believing that It was normal for a girl to risk her life in order to get an education.
1: This is Shabana Basij Rusik. She grew up in Kabul, Afghanistan, in a home with five other siblings.
2: Two older sisters, one older brother, and I have a younger sister and a younger brother.
1: Shabana's parents had big dreams for all of their kids. And education was a top priority. So every day, her older siblings would head to school, while Shabana, still too young to start school, would study at home with her mom.
2: When I look back at my early education, it's my mother who helped me and all of my siblings learn how to read and write. But
1: then one day, in 1996, the Taliban took control of Kabul and impose strict new rules that completely change the city, especially for women.
2: When the Taliban came to power, they required women to wear a burqa, so essentially covering themselves head to toe, often in a blue-colored veil, and they were not allowed to walk outside alone. They had to be escorted by a male family member People were not allowed to watch TV, listen to music. Men were required to grow a beard, whether they liked it or not. They were required to wear traditional clothing. Girls would be prohibited from attending school. Women uh, would not be allowed to go to work.
1: So Shabana's two older sisters had to drop out of school.
2: They had no option, Um, especially my older sister had no option. Um, She had just graduated high school the only option she had was to go abroad. My second oldest sister, whose education was cut off in seventh grade, her options were limited too.
1: Basically, her only option was to go to a secret school. But to do that, she would need Shabana's help.
2: And um, that's when I, I remember me dressing up as a boy became a serious conversation.
1: Shabana picks up that story from the TED stage.
2: So for the next five years, I dressed as a boy to escort my older sister, who was no longer allowed to be outside alone, to a secret school. It was the only way we both could be educated. Each day, we took a different route so that no one would suspect where we were going. We would cover our books in grocery bags so it would seem we were just out shopping. The school was in a house. More than 100 of us packed in one small living room. It was cozy in winter, but extremely hot in summer. (laughs) We all knew we were risking our lives, the teacher, the students, and our parents. From time to time, a school would suddenly be canceled for a week because Taliban were suspicious. We always wondered what they knew about us.
1: were you scared every day? Were you just terrified?
2: I, I think, you know, uh, some days we weren't scared. I think sometimes, uh, you know, it's a human nature, is pretty interesting. You know, sometimes when you do something on a daily basis, it becomes your new n- normal. Hmm. And then occasionally we had these real reminders of how incredibly risky it was hmm. to be doing what we were doing. You know, sometimes... Those reminders came in different ways. Uh, It was either hearing stories about a secret school being discovered by the Taliban and the teacher being beheaded in front of the students, the students being punished or their families being punished. Mm. Some days it was feeling like we were being followed, and I think those were the most um, scariest experiences. Um, We would either randomly walk into somebody's house whose door was open and stay there for several minutes and then get out and go back to our home and not even go to the secret school as we were instructed because we didn't want to potentially lead anyone to the secret school. Or some days just walk into the market and pretend like we were out shopping and then come home and beg our parents to stop sending us to the secret school. We would ask them, you know, like, why can't we be like every other girl in our neighborhood or in our relatives um, who don't take this risk? Um, What is the point? Why do we have to go to the secret school? It's not like we're going to graduate high school and go to college, get a job and work. Why are we risking all of our lives? Why can't we just sit at home? Yeah. Um, I feel now looking back at all of that, I feel so guilty because I can't imagine being my mother. Uh, You know, I can't imagine what went through her head every single day. You know, she would say goodbye to us. And she had no idea if we would return home alive. She had no idea what time to expect us to come home. (laughs) But they they were so patient and... um, explaining to us uh, why it was important that we risked our lives to get an education. My father, he would say, listen, my daughter, you can lose everything you own in your life. Your money can be stolen. You can be forced to leave your home during a war. But the one thing that will always remain with you is what is here. And if we have to sell our blood To pay your school fees, we will. So do you still not want to continue? I remember waking up one morning to the sound of joy in my house. My father was listening to BBC News on his small, grey radio. There was a big smile on his face, which was unusual then because the news mostly depressed him. The Taliban are gone, my father shouted. I didn't know what it meant, but I could see that my father was very, very happy. You can go to a real school now, he said.
1: It's amazing because on on this episode, everyone has sort of gone undercover to expose something or to highlight something. You were literally going undercover for five years just to get an education, something that the vast majority of us take for granted.
2: Yeah. I thought this is how it was done everywhere, (laughs) that this is what girls had to do. And then 9-11 happened. Um, Then the Taliban regime was toppled. Then in 2002, as an 11-year-old girl, soon to be 12 years old, I found myself in a public school for the very first time in my life. The very first time I saw a woman without a burqa out in the public was the principal of my school. Um, She was dressed incredibly beautifully and sharp, and she was wearing this bright red lipstick And the minute I saw her, I was so scared for her safety. I couldn't believe. I was literally and physically cringing, you know, out of fear for her safety. But there she was leading teachers and students and instructing people what to do. There were thousands and thousands of girls, most wearing burqa, some young like me not wearing a burqa around the school, and this was the the day we were getting our results after uh, several tests that we had taken. The Taliban regime obviously had burnt all the records of, um, you know, girls. And so the government announced that girls could come to school to take an entrance exam into whatever grade they felt comfortable being placed into. So I took the entrance exam for sixth grade going into seventh grade. And the day that our results were being announced, our te- my teacher um, called up my name. And when she looked at me, she had this uh, shock on her face, and she said, oh, no. And I faced the group of students standing there who were meant to be in my class, and I was shocked huh. as well most of these girls were six years older than I was. And that was the very first time I realized how incredibly lucky I was to have the parents I have. That was the very first time I had great appreciation for what my parents tried to tell us all along uh, during the Taliban regime that uh, sending us to a secret school that, allowing us to get an education despite the risk was going to be the biggest investment in our life and that yeah. yes we probably didn't realize it at that time but we would at some point point. and I was standing there I all I wanted to do was to hug my parents and thank them and over and over for what they had done mm-hmm. that feeling was incredibly overwhelming for me
1: Shabana Basij-Rusik, she eventually graduated from Middlebury College in Vermont. She's now the managing director of SOLA. It's a nonprofit that helps exceptional young Afghan women access education worldwide. And she runs the only all-girls boarding school in Afghanistan. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Tonight's the
2: night that I plan my hit,
1: Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Going Undercover, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. You can also listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. You can do it now at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us. That's TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. And you can tweet at us. It's at Ted Radio Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online.
4: You know the names of the primary players. Jimmy Carter.
0: Our is not strong anymore. Ronald Reagan. We have perverted our constitution.
4: Gerald Ford. Let's go! But how they acted, it's just about the opposite of their popular images.
1: Those are the seeds of the culture war.
4: Landslide. How a presidential race led to today's political divide. Subscribe now to Landslide, part of the NPR Network.